Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are in uh, continuing through the New Testament and tonight we, today, maybe it's tonight, it might be this morning, but wherever you're at in your chronology, we are in 1 Corinthians and we are in week two. One of the things we did last week was we laid a bit of a foundation for how to mm-hmm. understand 1 Corinthians and part part of that was going back to our study of the Gospels and how we understand the concept of patronage, uh, what we discussed with uh, Dr. Warren Carter. So how could we remind ourselves of what patronage is? Yeah, let's just remind ourselves of a couple of things quickly here that we went over in our last episode also. So one is uh, patrons are wealthy, influential persons uh, in Corinth, and Corinth was well known for its patrons. Uh, and they took on families uh, or individuals, but often whole families, like an individual, hey, you'll become my client. And then the whole family moves into the household there. They got land, they got jobs, they got money, and they got legal protection. And then the clients would then work for them and give them services, et cetera. And that's why the, the patrons are wealthy individuals who don't do a whole lot. They kind of oversee and manage things there. They were very powerful figures and they had significant influence in the city. So if you fell out of favor with a patron and you're it's, you're one of the clients, well, you go back on the streets. So it, it's not slavery at all because you willfully kind of ascribe to this patron, but you do what you do for the patron in order to be provided for and have financial and economic stability. One of the things I think that's really important though is that major problem behind 1 Corinthians is probably some of these patrons some of these wealthy individuals that were causing significant problems in the city of Corinth and in the, and the church in Corinth. Uh, the second thing that we pointed out was rhetoricians, that they were teachers and philosophers who made their living as, as trained in the art of rhetoric. Uh, and the art of rhetoric, I mean, they're trained speakers, they're trained presenters, and they, their goal was to get approval and uh, adulation. And that was far more important than your content even. It was just make people laugh, make, make people applaud and show people that you're respectable. And then you would say, oh, I follow this teacher here. And someone, mm-hmm. oh, I follow that teacher there because they're so smart or they're so well-educated or so they're so great. And it's really just because they're like a really good politician and they know how to win a crowd over there, right? Um, and kiss the babies type of thing. Paul wasn't playing that game. So the church in Corinth were like, well, Paul, you know, we're, we're following Jesus and we're following you, but would you be like these guys? Would you like, you know, kind of class up your presentation skills a little bit better, dress up a little bit better? Paul's like, dude, look, I work for Jesus and I'm not taking any money from you because if I do, I, I'm going to be in your debt and you're going to have influence over me. So I'm not going to do that. He refused to receive support from them. And at the same time, Paul also chose to work as a leather worker. So he makes his living as a common laborer. So now Paul's associating himself with the poor and with the common laborers. Both of these are problems. At the same time, the third thing then was Paul refused to speak with the worldly wisdom that these guys spoke with and the eloquence that Paul spoke with. And Paul's like, look, I'm not going to speak that way. Like, well, we want to be proud of you, Paul, but we can't be proud of you. And Paul's like, I can't do that. And the reason why is because the gospel I'm preaching is about Jesus's death and resurrection. And it looks foolish to them, but it's actually far wiser than their wisdom. So the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. And the wisdom of God, of course, is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And Paul's other answer, which we mentioned last week in 1 Corinthians 2.5 was, I don't want your faith to rest on my ability to win over a crowd. I want your faith to be, you know what, I believe in the gospel that you're proclaiming, even though it's not attractive and you're, you know, you're like a, a common laborer 
and you're not someone that I that we want to like follow behind and hitch our our trailer to. Okay, I believe these are some of the conflicts going behind. Uh, set in the context, at least for First Corinthians. All right, so let's jump to the uh, the text. Uh, that yeah. letter opens up in chapter one, and our first chunk is one through nine. Yeah, and this is the introduction. I think you talked a little bit last week, Vinny, about how letters are structured, and we'll mm-hmm. keep looking at these a little bit as we kind of go through the letters. The structure is going to be simple. The, the sender of the letter is going to introduce himself, Paul, an apostle of God, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And we mentioned that last week that Paul's really forceful. He identifies himself as an apostle, which he doesn't always do in verse one. And Sosthenes, by the way, and Sosthenes is the synagogue official, very likely, that was beaten up in Acts mm-hmm. chapter 18. So if you read the story in Acts chapter 18, that happened in the city of Corinth. Apparently, Sosthenes became a Christian, which is really interesting. And he writes, co-writes the letter with Paul. The first thing that happens in, in these letters is the introduction of the sender, uh, the writer, and then secondly, the recipients, the church mm-hmm. of God, which is in Corinth. And then third, you have a greeting or thanksgiving. Now, we often skip these things. Okay, let's just get into the meat of things. Mm-hmm. One thing I want you to note is how often, well, just kind of watch what happens here. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, and, and I'm, I'm going to see if any, if any key words stick out for you, okay? And if any words stick out for you, when I'm done, you let me know what, what really stuck out. All right, here we go. So we'll see how, how good you are at this. All right, verse one, Paul calls an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse four, I thank my God concerning you always for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you're enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that if you're, you're not lacking in any gift, waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom also you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then the letter begins, verse 10, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another, that be no divisions among you. All right, so... Anything stand out that kind of you might have noticed there? Yeah, well, he definitely references God. He def- references calling. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there's this other noun, smart Alec, didn't you? The, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, you got it. Oh, I, I, I did get sure it. I wasn't sure if you had noticed that. It was third yeah. on the list. but Yeah, 10 times, 10 times in the first 10 verses, Paul calls him Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or Christ. And so you, you get in the in these introductions here, things that are going to be very significant. Paul's going to say, look, it's Jesus that this is all about. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about following Cephas. It's not. It's about following Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of crucifixion and resurrection. So when we look at the first chunk, that's the introduction, the, the, the greeting and the thanksgiving before it gets into the, you know, the body, the body is what we would call yeah. it. But we would say that the body would start at chapter 1, verse 10, and that goes through probably chapter 4, verse 17-ish. Yeah, right. Yep, so what happens now in ancient letters, you're going to see things as you read through, sometimes that the author will say, my dear brothers, or my dear brothers and sisters, depending on your translation. And statements like that are to get your attention and usually an indication that I'm changing to a new topic. So the book of James is very much structured this way. Mm-hmm. If you look at the book of James, you're going to see my brothers, my brothers, my brothers, and that or my brothers and sisters, and that forms kind of the structure of the book. So another way of doing it that we mentioned back in our study of the Gospel of Matthew is the author will use what we call inclusios, and that is a statement that's stated at the beginning and then stated at the end, and that forms a bracket. Mm -hmm. 
So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, uh, in which I just kind of read, I appeal to you, or I, I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, so not verse 17, but verse 16, he says, therefore, I exhort you, or I appeal to you, be imitators of me. And you can see the word therefore often is an indication that it's a conclusion. And uh, I exhort you, which is the same phrase that's used in chapter 1, verse 10, there's your inclusio. And I think we would probably include verse 18 in this conclusion. Um, I'm sorry, verse 17 in this conclusion. And then maybe 18 might begin actually the new section. So obviously, whoever did the chapter breaks done kind of missed that there. But I think this is our first section, 1, 110 through 417. Now, that's going to be important. One, one last thing, Vinny. When we get to chapter 7 of this letter, Paul is going to all of a sudden say, now concerning the things that you wrote about. So now we see the first six chapters. Paul is addressing things that he's bringing up himself. And then in chapter seven, Paul begins to respond to things in their letter. And he's going to say, now concerning, uh, several times. And whenever he says, now concerning, you can see it's the next item in their letter. So those are some things that we see in terms of the structure of First of uh, First Corinthians. And just a reminder, Rob, you just said whoever inserted the chapter yeah. divisions. We we need to remember we've talked about this before. Yeah. Chapter and verse divisions were not original. The the biblical yeah. writers did not include those. Those are something written like included like 500 years ago to help us, and they're great. But the original audience is primarily going to be illiterate. They're going to be hearing these messages. And that's why it's important to have these uh, oral cues. So yes. when you hear these bookends, it's like, I know, oh, okay, this is the beginning of, of a new phrase or, uh, you know, he's doing something there. So that's why these are so important uh, to those yeah. cultures. Yeah. For us to read then more carefully, to recognize those things and not always rely on a chapter and verses. So the, the person in the chapter and verses did a good job. He's, mm -hmm. He found a lot of these and was pretty good at it, but he missed some. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes a chapter break occurs where it ought not to be. Like the famous Isaiah 53 is an example. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a servant song, but the servant song actually begins in chapter 52, 52 verse 13. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the last three verses of 52 belong in uh, the servant song of Isaiah 53. So there's an example like, yeah, don't use the chapter break to, to kind of lead us there. So as you learn how to read the scriptures, look for statements like, I exhort you, or I call you, or therefores. Uh, we've talked about the word for in the book of Romans, how the word for means the reason why I said this is because of this. And so, you know, it's carrying on a, a previous argument. And then obviously exhortations like my brothers and sisters, things like that. All right. So when we do read one chapter, one verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that mm -hmm. there is no divisions among you, but that you being united in the same mind and the same judgment. So this is kind of his thesis statement in a sense, like he's, yeah. he's giving us like, this is the reason why I'm writing. And then he's going to expound on this, right? Yeah, right. So remember, in the city, there were, we follow this teacher, we follow that teacher, we want Paul to be like these teachers and speak with the, the eloquence that they speak with, so we can follow him. He won't do that. So we're going to follow Apollos, who was probably wasn't a more skilled rhetorician. So there's the divisions in the church, Paul's like, look, this can't happen. We cannot have this. And turn to chapter three, verse 16 and 17, and mm -hmm. you'll see what Paul says. And he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God? This is Acts, 1 Corinthians 3, 3 verse 16. Uh, do you not know that you are a, a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. How does this work with how uh, later Christian theology would go to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity, which we could definitely read in, even in Pauline language alone, you definitely see that right. uh, sort of, even in 1 Corinthians, you could formulate the doctrine of the Trinity 
in, in a sense. How, does that connect in any way? Well, it could be because I mean, see, Paul seems to indicate the fact that the Trinity is the form foundation of the reason why unity is so significant. I mean, the reality is unity is just one of the key things throughout Jesus's sermon in, in John 17. I pray that mm-hmm. they may be one, even as we are one. Throughout the, the letters of the New Testament, Paul is trying to preserve and protect the unity and identity of, of the church and the fact that God is three persons and yet one God. Uh, unity and diversity might very well form the foundation of it. After all, Remember, the temple is the place of God's presence. Mm-hmm. And so when Paul appeals to the temple, he's ultimately appealing to God and his divine nature and, and who he is. So he even, he even ends chapter three with, look, guys, all things belong to you, verse 21. So let no one boast in men for all things belong to you, whether a Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Look at 23 now. And you belong to Christ mm-hmm. and Christ belongs to God. So I think there is this idea of the unity has to be, preserved mm-hmm. because it is who god is be united just like god is united yeah hey everyone thanks again for listening to the podcast we really appreciate it and hopefully it's blessing you hey, do us a favor if this is something that you are digging if it's helping you if it's uh, encouraging you take a second just to like it give it a review give it you know five stars if you think it's five star worthy uh, share it with your friends and we just want to get this out to more people uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with so do that help us out and now we'll get back to the podcast so let's talk about unity real quick and this probably won't be the all-encompassing mm. uh dialogue on it right. but when we are talking about churches i, I and this is so multifaceted now as, yeah. as i'm thinking about because like paul is addressing congregations and there's so many times he talks about like congregational unity right like right. I, and you could think to a, a first corinthians or an ephesians or um, romans all these places like unity is a big deal within the, yeah. the local congregation right but you you would think that then he would also make the argument that like like his argument in ephesians 2 is like the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down yeah. not just within your local congregation but within the church universal if you want to use that word the, the big c church right um so what do we do with, when it comes to unity? What does that look like? Mm. Not merely the local church context, but then also the, the universal church. Uh, I don't know. How, how, do we, yeah. how do we have that conversation? Well, I think we start the conversation, throw things out on the table and say, yeah, what do we do with this? I don't think that we can say, well, you know what? It's just so divided today. There's nothing we can do about it. There's, it's never going to be done. I, I think that's kind of true. There's no way we're going to, reunite all the christians the baptists and presbyterians are probably never going to get together let alone mm-hmm. the catholics and orthodox and uh, they might before the protestants will ever join join forces sure. with them we're just not yeah. going to do it but i don't think we can be content with that no um because the scriptures are so emphatic in chapter 1 verse 10 paul says be made complete in the same mind john 17 i pray that they may be one mm-hmm. even as we are one we know that the devil is the one who comes into the church. He's the deceiver, and he's the one that tries to bring uh, controversy and uh, problems and everything else there. Now, at the same time, we know that there's a place for, in 1 Corinthians 5, expel the wicked brother from among you. And you know, there are heretics in the first in the second century where the church mm-hmm. is like, hey, look, this guy's got to go. Decide who's a heretic. There's, or- there's a clear dividing line between there, there is a dividing line between in and out. Not everyone is in. Yeah, but I'm not sure that dividing line cl- is clear. Yeah. yeah. Right? I, I know it's it's clear to us historically looking back. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. there's no doubt Arius was a heretic. Yeah, yeah. And Athanasius was the good guy. Yeah. 
But if you study, so if you're not knowing what I'm referring to, in 325, there's a council in Nicaea, the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker. that's where that creed comes from. And that council there was debating upon the fact that a presbyter named Arius uh, in the church in Alexandria, uh, which is in Egypt, was teaching that Jesus was not eternal or co-eternal with God. He was essentially like an A-God, like a Jehovah's mm -hmm. Witness theology of today. And Jehovah's Witnesses today do appeal to uh, Arius. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is not eternal. And obviously he's denying the Trinity. So we're like, okay, this is black and white. It's easy. Well, it wasn't easy. So Athanasius um, in um, Alexandria literally yep. went around the empire mm -hmm. trying to rally bishops and others to say, hey, look, guys, you got to help us with this because this is significant. This is serious. Undermining the very person of Jesus Christ and who he is. It undermines the cross. It undermines redemption. It undermines the triune nature of God. And they won. So at the Council of Nicaea, Arius was declared a heretic. It was just not a question at all. But you have to remember the Council of Nicaea was called by the emperor, Constantine, mm -hmm. to Christianize the empire. And he convenes these bishops. He, call, he paid for them to come. He provides for their well-being while they're there. And so a few years later, when the next emperor, well, actually, Constantine himself, they decided that Athanasius was was whacked out, and they decided, mm -hmm. you know what, maybe um, he was expelled. Yeah. yeah, maybe Arius was okay. Yeah. In fact, Constantine was actually baptized mm -hmm. by one of Arius's disciples, I believe it was, mm -hmm. on his deathbed. At the time, on they didn't get baptized yeah. until their deathbed for. But nonetheless, uh, Constantine's baptized by an Arian, and now Athanasius five times over the next what forty five years mm -hmm. of his life. Yep. Athanasius is fleeing for his life and finding exile out in the Egyptian wilderness. Athanasius is hiding out for you know five different times for his life. It's not until 381, Athanasius has died now, that the council, I think it's the Council of Constantinople, mm -hmm. that takes place and says, not only do we affirm the Nicene Creed, which is really emphatic, right? It's Jesus is God of God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. I mean, it's really clear mm -hmm. that the Nicene Creed is Jesus is eternal with God and mm -hmm. equal with God as the creator of all things. But then they added the paragraph on the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. to affirm the triune nature of God. And some people say, oh, the, the Trinity wasn't invented until the Council of Nicaea. It's like, no, the Trinity was just universally agreed upon by everyone. It's the yeah. first time that we really had someone of significance in the areas questioning the doctrine of the Trinity. So there are times where this has to happen. But realize it's not it's not easy. It's not always crystal clear. Mm -hmm. I mean, just go back to um, Nazi Germany. And you had the confessing church, mm -hmm. right? And then you had the state church. And it's really obvious to us who's right and who's wrong. But to a lot of pastors, it wasn't. Look at other issues. Look at race, at slavery. How many pastors condoned slavery all these years? Mm -hmm. And now we're like, this is anathema. This is so wrong that you treat another human being as if they're not human and they're not even worthy of the gospel being preached to them. They can't become Christians. And if they do become Christians, they can't be freed. This should be really obvious and really clear. It's like, it's not always really obvious. It's not always really clear. And it takes time. So we have to wrestle with that. I don't know what, I mean, I'm sure you have some thoughts here too. But I, I think you have, the Reformation is kind of what started it, but can you fault the Reformation? So the Reformation had, had a history, you know, it formally starts in 1517, but I mean, it goes back a couple hundred years. John mm -hmm. Huss, John Wycliffe and others, they have been protesting for reform for years, for hundreds of years. 
the Catholic Church had become corrupt. And I say that with respect to my Catholic friends because they acknowledge the Catholic mm -hmm. Church had become corrupt. You know, when you're having weddings at the uh, at the Vatican for the Pope's grandchildren, and the problem with that is that the Pope's not supposed to have kids. Mm -hmm. So if I'm figuring that part out. So they should not only have not have kids, they shouldn't have grandkids. And if they have grandkids, they shouldn't have any weddings at the at the Vatican for their kids because everyone is not, hey, that's the Pope's grandkid, which means he had sex with somebody else and he's not mm -hmm. married. So you had popes killing popes. You had just some serious corruption. Obviously, the the mafia, you know, in uh, in, in Italy had mm -hmm. had control over the papacy for years. Something has to be done. But once, and I know Luther didn't quite leave Rome. Luther was kind of kicked out of Rome. But once that happens, how do you stop people from leaving Luther, right? And so. Uh, Zwingli has this problem in Switzerland, right? And Zwingli and Luther decided to not unite their movements, which I think was a mistake. And then Zwingli has people that are known as Anabaptists who said, uh, we don't like this idea of infant baptism. We should only baptize people who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior and believers baptism. And Zwingli's like, yeah, but if we do that, the Catholic areas of Switzerland are going to start war against us because it mm -hmm. like, it's really undermining the Catholic. And there's too much tension there. Let's wait a little while. So these Anabaptists, people who believe in adult baptism only, went and broke from, from Zwingli and started another movement, the Baptist, kind of the heritage of the Baptist movement. Um, and it's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So you know, how, do you, how do you fault that? Okay. But the point of that is, once that starts, there's no way of stopping it. There's no way of saying, you know what, we are the bishops in charge, or we're the pastors in charge, or we're the presbytery that's in charge, or whatever your church hierarchy is. And we say no, and everybody else submits to us or they're kicked out of the church. You don't have that because Rome was that, but Rome was corrupt. And so well, we leave that. Even with that, I mean, there's times where there's like two or three guys claiming to be Pope. So who yeah. is the leader of the church? Even even prior to the Reformation in the 1050s, yeah. you have this the, the great schism, this, the divide between the Eastern Church, what we now would say is the Greek Orthodox Church, right. and the and the, the Roman the Eastern church. Orthodox Church. Or Eastern Orthodox Church, yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's one of these things where you could just go throughout history, and there's always these sorts of things where... Like how often can you actually point to unity, like a true unity, especially within, you know, Christendom when it, when it, you know, with Constantine and it, when he actually takes over and declares the Roman world to be a Christian nation, immediately you get politics involved and it's a forced unity, which let's be honest, how often is forced unity actually unif it's, it's uniformity at that point. That's not unity. And then you get to the modern day and you mm -hmm. say, well, I think one of the problems is that um, pastors are gun shy. They're afraid, and justifiably so to some extent, to preach the gospel full on because they're going to lose people. Mm -hmm. uh, because if they don't like it, they're just going to go to the street down the church down the street. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have to have compromise. And I think what happens with that is that once you get silent, once once the church is silent, let's say the church is silent on a particular issue. So let's say it's um, slavery, it's just an easy uh, illustration to use. And you have some pastors going, hey, this is wrong. And then all the people in their congregation say, well, we're going to go to the other church down the street because they're going to let us be slave owners. And so we're, we're not going to attend your church. And so your church closes or you get persecuted because you're the one saying slavery is wrong. It, it kind of silences you. Once you get silenced for a period of time, it's almost impossible to speak up now because everybody is, an, is advancing slavery or whatever mm -hmm. the issue might be. I don't think it's possible today to bring unity back to the church. 
but at the same time, I think, you know, when you make a commitment to a church, um, the pastor of that church, let's say you become a member, some churches have membership, um, you're sending a covenant. Mm -hmm. And that covenant says, I'm going to serve this church. And it means I'm going to serve even if I don't agree with everything. And the pastor of that church says, okay, we're going to receive you as a member and I'm going to love you. I'm going to bury your family members. I'm going to marry them. I'm going to baptize your, your kids and families. I'm going, to, I'm going to be there when you have injuries and I'm going to visit you in the hospitals. I'm going to do everything for you because you're part of our church and your families and your friends and everybody else as well. And then all of a sudden you say something as a pastor that, well, I didn't like, I just, I, don't, I just don't agree with that. Um, and I'm, I'm, and then they leave mm -hmm. and they go to another church. Like what? I don't think, I think that's going too far. I, I think that's where we have to draw the line and say, okay, look, you know, now here's another thing, Vinny. And, and I, I've been the only one talking here, but um, I understand the fact that a family goes, I want to go to this church, but you don't have anything here for my kids. Mm -hmm. You know what? Yeah, we don't. Okay. And that church down the street does. Okay. You know what? Bless. But we also have to be careful not to speak bad about that other church mm -hmm. or you know, we should be speaking bad about other churches at all to make our own church look good. I just think, I think there's a lot of issues here that, that uh, are quite problematic. I don't, I don't know. Let me hear some of your well, I mean, Yeah, I mean, this is so multi like this yeah, could literally yeah. be a multi-part series, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so even like working backwards to your point, like I, I had a conversation with a friend the other day who has been a long time attendee of my church. And he just said, hey, you might, might have noticed you haven't seen me around in a while. We're attending this other church. And he has a, a junior high mm -hmm. uh, age child. And he's like, hey, we just weren't feeling connected with that child. And so like, like we're, we're going to talk at some point, but like my exhortation to that person would be, is it that you don't like it or it, we didn't offer anything? Because mm. there's that consumeristic yeah, aspect, right, that right. consumeristic thing that feeds into it where it's just like, you want to shop around to meet your needs. Yes and, yes. and that's different than what you're describing where it's like, yeah, we don't offer anything. And maybe it's because we can't or, right. you know, whatever. It's the one pastor who's on staff and you're you're building something up and you can't do everything. And that's just not the, the priority you could put. So there's the difference between, yeah, we just can't do this thing. And that is a need you might need met right. versus the consumerism of it where it's like, right okay, like, no, we need to actually talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, you know, there's nuance here, right, in, in yes. the conversation. I, I think I probably share uh, the same conviction as you were in my tradition. I come from the Baptist tradition. I'm, I'm a member and on staff of a Baptist church. Mm -hmm. So it's going to have a different understanding of how that local congregation might um, connect with, you know, we're not part of a presbytery or anything like right, that. Right. We're, we're, you know, we, we have a denomination, but we're very autonomous. Right, And so for, for me, I would hold to a strong sense of local congregational unity. And, mm -hmm. and this is what I preach in all my classes, especially I offer a, a summer politics class where we talk about this sort of thing, mm -hmm. where it was just, man, that's been, that could be a whole couple episodes. Yeah, they yeah. Talk about the triage that needs to happen from having to do that class. But it's, it's the idea of saying, you know, like, like the term you used, uh, it, covenantal membership that's the term we use at our church where mm. if you are entering entering into formal covenantal membership like this is what it looks like and this is how we take care of one another right. and this is what it means in terms of i'll use like as a member my relationship to how i submit to the pastors and elders collectively of of our church and since we are a larger church we have you know multiple of you know, those sorts of things but it's saying what does unity look like within my local congregation first and foremost how do we practice that and model that and not 
you know, point fingers at the rest of the world to do it. Like we, we have a tough enough time just doing it within our own congregation. Yeah. And we're like, what, a 1500 person church. So there's, mm. we're like multiple churches within ourselves. Right. <laughs> uh, and so that's where it's like, no, that first has to happen within the local congregation before you could expect it to happen anywhere else in the world. For me, that's, that's a very important value of like, we're Baptists. We don't need to figure out unity with the Presbyterians on how we think about baptism. Let's just figure out what we think about baptism and, and practice unity within mm-hmm. our local congregation with the brothers right. and sisters who I share the Lord's Supper with. Yeah, yeah. And it, I think it's so significant that we, in our public face, that we don't speak badly about other Christians mm-hmm. uh, in a public context, because then the world goes, yeah, look at these people. They don't even get along mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let's look at a couple of verses here in First Corinthians, just kind of reinforce the points I think that we've had at hand. I don't know that we've answered a whole lot of questions. I think we're mm-hmm. raising more questions than we're answering. Which is but good. Paul, yeah, <laughs> you're, getting your, yeah. you're getting your money's worth, right? Yeah, absolutely. But Paul says in verse 12, verse 11, I've been informed from Chloe's people that there's divisions among you or quarrels. Now I mean this, verse 12, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. And that's the, uh, they follow this rhetorician, they follow that guy, and that's kind of what's going on. And Paul's response is, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And we mentioned this last week. I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you, well, except Christmas and guys. None of you were baptized in my name. And he goes on, you know, Christ, verse 17, Christ didn't even send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Look, there's this unity to the church that needs to be maintained. Now, I respect the fact that um, maybe you or somebody else might say, you know, I have a lot of problems with Catholicism because of the legalism behind the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, but guess what? I know Catholics that are really, really good Christians. Absolutely. And I know Orthodox uh, members that Mm -hmm. are, my Mm -hmm. own brother, that are really good Christians. Yep. And we may not agree with them, but you know what? We still need to respect them. Absolutely. And we need to understand uh, the the fact that we are to be unified with them. And we're going to get to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but uh, just kind of touch on it for a second now. You know, Paul says that when you take communion in an unworthy manner, you're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. And Jesus, is, Jesus said it this way. He says, if you go to the altar and present to present your offerings and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offerings at the altar and go your way. Mm-hmm. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offerings. So I think there's something about the unity of the church that we need to res- understand and we need to, I think this is one of the things we need to grieve over. We need to grieve over the disunion in the church and we need to not be contributing to it. I mean, I look back when I was a young man, uh, side note here, but I grew up in a church, a Baptist church up in uh, Northern California. And it was great. It was a great church, I had a great youth group, a dynamic youth group. And I just got to be 18 and I just, it, I just wasn't getting fed. And I just, I wanted more and I want to be taught. And they didn't have a college group. and so um, I went to another church and uh, they had a dynamic college and young, young adult ministry there. That's where I met my wife. But I always look back and go, did I make a mistake? Hmm. Because I left, you know, I left the church. I, I, I contributed to the disunity, right? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't know if it's right or wrong. And it's, I think we need to be troubled by it. And I think we need to be troubled and bothered by the disunity. And I think we need to make sure that we're not contributing to it. So, yeah, I think there is something to said to be said for wisdom, though, when it comes to uh, theological convictions yeah. and how we do partnership with a particular type of church. And this is what I what I mean. 
you, like you all actually use you and I as an example. This yeah. would be a really good one. So I, for, for myself as a Baptist, for you as an ordained Presbyterian, uh, we could share a podcast. We could talk about yes. things. We could do ministry together. Yes. It would probably be un you and I to plant a church together, though. Because one of the first things we're going to do is disciple people, and it's like, great, we, let's make disciples, let's baptize people, and immediately we're going to have an argument on, well, then, like, is do it, we bat? Like, we we had Joe and Mary who are converted, and we're baptizing right. them, and we they went their kids, they went junior baptized, and we're having an argument right about. Now, yeah, yeah. And this is going to come from it. It's not like one of us take scriptures more or less seriously than each other. It's like we both have a conviction on yeah. what scripture said. And so it's not about that. And so it's about saying, okay, it's just not wise. We both agree in the importance of baptism. Right. We just have a different like view and conviction on what it is. So it would be unwise to start a church together because that's okay. going to come up. Okay. So let me push back a little bit on that one and then give another example. Could it be possible that we start a church together in which we say, if you want to be baptized, baptize your kids, go see your pastor, Rob. And if you want to be baptized only as an adult, go see Pastor Vinny. Right? Right? Could, could we not display unity, even though we don't agree with each other on uh, what baptism is? Because I sure. think what we're saying is, okay, hey, look, this is what I think baptism is. And I, I think if we had that conversation, it might be a good one to have even on the podcast. Yeah. What's sure. the difference between adult baptism and um, infant baptism? Mm -hmm. I think what you find out is actually there's not a lot of difference. Mm -hmm. um, and that we're kind of saying the same thing, but I'm saying that, no, we do this with water. I'm not saying that they're being saved, but could we actually display unity amongst our, amongst our differences? However, and I'm not exactly sure what your opinion is on this, but so I, I believe strongly, and I've advocated this even on the podcast, uh, that women should be equal with men in leadership mm -hmm. responsibilities mm -hmm. in the church. Now that's something that we might not be able to start a church over. And that's the one I was actually yeah, going to say. Because if that, you don't agree, yeah. I'm going to want women on our leadership team, because yeah, I think it's exactly. important to have their voice and everything yep. else. And you're going to say, well, we can have their voice, but they can't be on the leadership team. And I'm going to say, and I want Mary now to be trained and discipled and let her preach. And like, no, she can't. So that, that's what we're like. We can't actually. How, sure. Here's the deal. However, so we have two different churches now. I'm going to still go, oh, man, you guys got to go to Vinnie Church. It's a great church. They do wonderful things there. I'm not going to go, you know, I mean, it's a good church, but they just, they just don't esteem women like they should. Well, and I was going to say that, that becomes yeah. the problem with this right. unity. And you see this, especially in this topic yes. where what yeah. happens is, and, and I've been in both right. kinds of churches, uh, egalitarian and complementarian churches, where what happens is the character pops up, not, not, not always by the senior pastor, not always by, you know, the staff, but you, you just, I've heard this where on on the egalitarian side it's those people are just narrow-minded and yeah. they're strict literist and they have a bad hermeneutic and they just or they're 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 misogynist and all that stuff yeah and and then on the other side it's well those people just don't take the bible seriously because this they're is liberals. obviously what yep. yeah or they're just liberals Haven't they're just they read woke. paul who said a woman can't pass can't preach authority exactly, or teach exactly. Up, yeah Right. And so what happens is the caricature happens. And right. and so like, and I'm one of those believers, like I know people on both sides of the equation who I know people who are complementarian, who are misogynistic. And I've like, I'm like, bro, you're complimentary means no women in leadership, just so you know, and egalitarian <laughs> means women and men on, on equal part yeah. within the church, essentially. Yeah. And it could be no women in, on the complementarian side. It could be, yeah. there's degrees of it. There could uh, be no women in senior pastors, but they could be women's pastors. Yeah. And there, could yeah. Be, there could be women as pastors where the women can't be pastors at all. Yeah, yes yeah. yeah so like i i've i've admonished people who like it's like your view is just misogynistic it's not biblical 
and, yeah. and you, like on the complementarian side. And on the other side, I've had friends who are egalitarian who it's like, your view is not biblical. You're just like trying to be woke and trying to ad- yeah. like, and I hate yeah. using that term because it's so overused and ridiculous. It's like, you're just culturally influenced. You have no biblical conviction on this matter. Right, right. Those views are not helpful, whereas you could say, no, I have, but I also have friends on both sides of the equation that deeply love the scriptures in Jesus, and they want to be faithful to the text, and that's where their conviction has driven them, and I respect the heck out of that. And people who have, on both sides, who have views that I don't share, but I absolutely respect them. Yeah. And so the problem is, especially like, and, and I'll knock my tribe on this one, on a, on a complementarian conservative side, is we oftentimes say, where you have a, a, a female pastor, you don't have a church. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> like, how, yeah. like I, I, it's just so narrow-minded and ridiculous and telling God what he cannot, cannot do. Yeah. Uh, you could still be a complementarian and not have to go to war and divide over everything. And we, we've got to find a way of moving forward. I, I remember uh, one more note here. I always say one more note, but it could be like 20 yeah, more. There was a Harvard, I think it was a Harvard professor giving a presentation at a global like summit, a leadership summit. And he said, you know, he wasn't a Christian. I don't, I don't believe that he was. He said, you know, I don't get it because if you Christians kind of united your forces, mm-hmm. you could do some like really good things. Yeah. But the problem with you guys is, one of you guys have mastered how to care for the homeless. Mm-hmm. And then another one of you guys like hasn't figured out at all, but you can't like join up with the one church that mastered it. Mm-hmm. Instead, you got to like, try to do it yourself. Why don't you like just let that one church do it and send everybody over there. And then this church over here does really good with, you know, um, singles or you know, why can't you guys like use your resources and unite them? And I think that's just perfect example or, or perfect understanding of, why the devil has infiltrated the church to cause such divisions. The devil is the one who's the deceiver. And his purpose is to say, if I can divide them up, they're going to be Mm -hmm. less useful and less powerful, less influential. Imagine if the Christian church were unified globally today, how much of a voice it could have into all these other issues. Instead, Mm -hmm. we're bickering amongst ourselves and not even in a Christian way. Mm-hmm. And the result of the end, end result is no one's going to listen to us because they don't respect the way we mm-hmm. even converse with one another, let alone our views on these different issues. I think, I think this has just been so damaging. Let's let's close with a couple of verses here on this, um, and then kind of finish up here. James chapter four, verses one through three says, "What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel." You don't have because you don't ask and you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, Philippians 2, verses 2 and 3. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 10 says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-content, uh, self-condemned. So I think we're in total agreement. Strive for unity. That's that's what Jesus thought. That's what Paul yeah, thought. That's I what... got things I don't agree with you on, but I'm just not saying on the podcast because yeah. it's just not appropriate. <laughs> well, you said but it before. I'll tell you podcast. later. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'll tell you later. Yeah. Uh, but when is the appropriate? T- so why we would agree that there's unity yeah. that ought to be sought for. Even on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, you know, the famous line, judge not 
lest you be judged. Mm -hmm. But then we move down a few chapter or a few verses and it's Jesus says, Hey, beware of false teachers, which means that's looking within the church. We're not talking about political leaders at this point. So there is a level of discernment and warning that needs to happen when something is not right. So where is that, where is that line of demarcation between saying, okay, we're letting you in, we're letting you in. Oh wait, not this. And I'm not sure about this. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's a lot of gray area here, right? So the the line's not really clear. Mm -hmm. There are some things that are really obvious, and there's like the Arian heresy. So, like, or you would say Christian orthodoxy. Then the things that we would consider orthodoxy would be that's like that's an obvious one. I think we start there. I think with Mm -hmm. like the question, like, what is it that unite that all Christians agree on? Mm -hmm. And there's like only a few things. Okay, but let's start there. The reality is the New Testament writers do call out false teachers. Mm-hmm. Alexander and Hymenaeus, and uh, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have, not, will have nothing to do with us. So when I come, I'll call attention to what he's doing. He's calling out this person by name. So I think there's a place for that. I think we need to be careful, of course. The idea, of course, is love. Always has to be uh, love. And I think that's been the problem that I'm pointing out. I, don't, I think we're both pointing out that the church has not been doing these things in love. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, orthodox theology is serious. Theology is more important than loving somebody mm-hmm. else. They're mm-hmm. just, they're just wrong. They're going to go to hell. But the idea of it is in first Corinthians five, expel the wicked brother from among you is an act of love because when he realizes that he can't take communion, when he can't fellowship with the church because he's been kicked out, mm-hmm. he'll realize the gravity of his sin. Well, that doesn't work today. Because mm-hmm. if they get kicked out of one church, they're just going to go to another else. one. Yeah. Right. And if they, obviously they might not go to another one within our denomination, but they'll just yep. go to another denomination. But that's kind of the idea. It's an act of love to say we're going to disfellowship you because what you're doing is so damaging to yourself and so potentially corrupting to the, to the rest of the body. Mm-hmm. But that only happens, and not only the result of that is only after a, there's a lot of love that's been poured out. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of counsel. There's been a lot of crying together. There's been a lot of talking together. There's been a lot of you know, pastors being in that person's home and in those conversations and that person, that couple, that family being in the pastor's office and having conversations with elders and others. There's, there's been a lot of conversation and it's like, okay, look, we are not getting anywhere. You're continuing to do this and it's bringing destruction on this congregation. We're going to have to ask you to leave. So you're talking about church discipline within the local church at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And in situations like that, I, I think you're asking like bigger questions, right? Okay. Well, I think it could be both. I think that's yeah, good because yeah. in, yeah. in, in a Paul or John context, you're talk, you're warning local congregations about what they're coming up against. Yeah. But so that's uh, I think the appropriate place to start. But yeah, yeah. then along with that, then what do you do, especially in this global, this small global world we live in, where I know what every pastor on the block is teaching because I could wa- just watch their sermon and yeah, everything yeah. is is meant to be marketed towards the masses. Yeah. Uh, let me finish my thought on the other one for just a second, if okay. I can. And that is, it's really important that everything is done in that context of local church discipline with love and with grace. And one of the reasons why is because if that person continues to do whatever they're doing, their sin or whatever it is, they're believing, whatever, they might try to, in spite, come back at you, right? That's going to manifest itself in speaking negatively about, oh, they did this, or they did this, or they did this. You need to have, as a church leadership, your character as such that, and your conduct as such that, those accusations are just false. Now, you might not defend yourself. That might not be right. But to say, listen, if you want to believe those accusations, believe them, but you should know by who I am or who we are and by our conduct that those accusations probably don't hold any weight there. Being above accusation is not the same thing as being above reproach. 
to, to um, use like first first timothy three language oh, like, oh it, I see what you're saying. yeah yeah be, right being above accusations and anybody's going to accuse exactly. you exactly yeah but being above reproach means yeah but they those accusations are just are vacuous mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i would also exhort if you are the one that's asked to leave that you leave with grace and that you don't go speaking badly about that other church wherever you might go because you might go to lunch with somebody else and like, yeah, I'm you know, why are you going to that church now? Oh, well, they did this, this, and this. And that other person might be on the fence of becoming a believer now. Mm -hmm. And you might be influencing them to go, you know what? Those Christians don't really have their act together. I, I don't think I can be, I, can, I don't think I can do this. You, you just got to be careful about this. It's, it's kind of like a husband and wife that gets a divorce. Well, don't speak badly about one another when when it's your weekend with the kids, mm -hmm. don't denounce, don't denounce mom now because they're going to go home to mom and they got to respect mom and mm -hmm. understand that she's the authority in that home right now. And so you need to acknowledge mom as that authority. It's just, it's just not right. It's not, it's not good. All right. So now your other question was, uh, go ahead and restart it again, if you don't mind. Uh, what do we do in the, our context where I know not just my, uh, my local church, what I, who I'm gathering with, weekly but i know what the church is up the street what they're going to be preaching because i can watch yeah. their videos i i just i know what every pastor in america is going to be doing especially with this this push to want to promote your stuff uh so heavily on social media i know what everyone's doing and we just have a lot of what we'd call pastors who are making millions and millions of dollars off their brand you could already see where i want to go yeah. <laughs> i don't know what can be done i don't know that anything can be done I think the only thing that can be done is to say, let's live differently. Let's preach differently. Let's teach differently. Let's be different and encourage that within our own community of disciples and create an alternative community. Now, that alternative community probably won't have as many people following it as the ones that are having the pomp and circumstance. Mm -hmm. um, that's just the reality, right? Francis Chan left his church, I think, a number of years ago and said, I have to stop because if Jesus came into my town, more people will come to my church than his mm -hmm. because I'm just a better speaker and I can sway an audience better than he can. Mm -hmm. And I think he was right because the idea was, we love this guy. We love, you know, and Jesus is like, hey, guys, go sell your possessions and follow me. No, mm -hmm. no, not today. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I've said before, I'm not sure how many times I've said in this podcast here, but I think the American Christian church is in dire, dire straits. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're manifesting the gospel. I think people are saved and there are definitely Christians in these churches. Mm -hmm. I think we've compromised the gospel. I think we've left cross-bearing love out of it. I think we've preached consumerism. I think you'd agree with that too. We've preached consumerism way too much. And we haven't demanded cross-bearing, sacrificial love, laying down your life for the sake of the other. All you have to do is open up Facebook and see how people are talking about other people mm -hmm. and your Christian friends are, are, are doing it. It's not as bad, I think, now as it used to be. Maybe it's just because I'm not on it as much. I, I like post things on it and like just get off. I just don't read it. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know what can be done other than pray, ask for a revival of the Spirit. And I think that the... The large score, uh, scale Christian church that's in the public eye um, is making a mockery of the gospel. And I think the media loves that and they feed off of that and they, they go to those people that are, that are kind of doing those things. And I don't think they see the 
the real Jesus loving disciple people that are loving their neighbors and their enemies and they're transforming communities and they're transforming neighborhoods and they're teaching in the schools of the inner cities. And the fact that the Christian church is the one that started hospitals, the Christian church is the one that started orphanages. We're the one that started leper colonies. We're the one that started, we did all these things in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And those people are, many of those people are still doing those things and they don't get the airtime because uh, sex sells and war sells and mm -hmm. conflict sells. And I hope that we can just, it's kind of like looking at Nazi Germany to go back to that and say, the confessing church was clearly the right one and only time told. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. No, I, I just, like, like you, I think it's, it's one of those, uh, just in general, it's one of those things we need to practice wisdom and discernment, but then also not be afraid. Yeah. To speak truth, because how, what is the damage yeah. we do when we don't speak? And this is the thing, yeah, that like, yeah. like referring back to our conversation with Scott McKnight and Laura, mm -hmm. where it's like they're actively speaking out against things. Because what is the damage that's done to the church when you don't, yeah. when you protect abusers, right? Yeah. What is the damage done when we don't speak against uh, celebrity pastors who are fleecing their flock for millions of yep. dollars and living the luxurious life? When and we don't say, like, but but what happens when you're just constantly fighting? in you know shooting arrows at each other yeah. It, 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 yeah it's just it's so difficult and how do you do it in a way that is you know with integrity and, uh, and loving so the church to yeah. add to add something on to this we i opened the last podcast with hey guys i want you to listen and allow us to say things that sometimes you might not agree with mm -hmm. don't only listen to teachers who only say what you like to say or what you like to hear but just think about it and critically examine it and be open I've said before that the reason why we named this ministry Determined Truth is because our goal is to, de to determine the truth and then to follow it. And the problem with that is, is that sometimes if I determine that something's the truth, I don't want to do that. Mm. So I'll decide that I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. We need to be open to the spirit of God to show us what truth is through whatever means possible. And then be willing to say, okay, now Lord, help me to follow, mm -hmm. help me to obey, help me to understand. And if you only believe the same things that you've believed since you were, you know, 25 years ago, shame on you. Because mm -hmm. I doubt that you were right on everything 25 years ago. I look back at my ministry like, oh my gosh, I have so much repenting to do for my early years of ministry. <laughs> you know, how much damage did I do? And, and I just hope God shows grace to those people that I corrupted with the things I taught. And um, the only thing I can do now is kind of move forward. But it's mm -hmm. just having an open mind to say, okay. Let me think about this. And you might not like it. Okay, cool. Great. Let's move on. Can we be brothers in Christ and love one another? Well, that wraps up. Uh, yeah, we, we, got, we, got, we got way into the text today, didn't we? I was going to say we went off script for like the last half hour. So that was good. But I yeah, think we need, I think we, we needed to. So, so all right, next time what we'll do is we're going to finish chapters two, one, two, and three, mm -hmm. uh, maybe into four. And there's another couple of big issues I think we need to look at and we'll have some good conversation with those. Uh, and then we'll get into the meat of the book of first Corinthians also. So this isn't meat yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> That's the communion passage, right? <laughs> Dad joke, but dum bum. <laughs> All right. See everyone next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.